First Kings chapter 7. Some extravagance and excellence is in this section of Scripture. Not an easy read. We are about 960 years from the coming of Christ. And Solomon is, has built the temple. And he's now turning his attention to his palace, which is a complex. It's not only his residence. There are courtyards and residence for his wife and the harem and, and other <clears throat> government or kingdom buildings. There is the house of the forest of Lebanon, the hall of pillars, the hall of the throne, the hall of judgment, his palace, and again, the uh, house for the women. It specifies his wife, his Egyptian wife, but it is likely it included um, all of his wives. The uh, palace has multiple functions, as the White House does, or any government building that serves a dual purpose of being a residence and holding court or taking care of the business. And this palace is large. It is costly. Unlike the temple, there's not so much gold, but there's a lot of cedar put into it. It would have been nice to walk into one of these buildings in the fragrance of cedar, unless you don't like that, that smell. I'm sure no moths were there. These, um, what we'll get in the first section is the palace, and then we get into the furnishings for the temple. I think it gets a little bit, a bit exciting there. Verse 1, But Solomon took 13 years to build his own house, so he finished all his house. Well, it's twice the size of the temple, and a different design. Again, there's not this gold um, overlay on everything. It's a 20-year building program in Jerusalem. So if you lived in Jerusalem at this time, when they started work on the temple, seven and a half years later, they start on Solomon's palace, and that goes on for 13 years. So, boomtown there in Jerusalem. In verse 2, he also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50, and its height 30 cubits, with four rows of cedar pillars, cedar beams on the pillars. You'd like the translators to translate what the number of cubits are, but they cannot because it's not a definite number, as we've discussed. So you have to do a lot of calculating, and you might have to run two uh, scales to come up with the sizes. We're sticking with the shorter cubit, the 18-inch one, and uh, I'll give you some dimensions, which a large part of this chapter is still very difficult to imagine this palace complex. There's just not enough information for anyone to really do that. There's more with the temple. In verse 3, and it was paneled with cedar, cedar above the beams, that were 45 pillars, 15 in a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows, and windows, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Verse 5 now. And all the doorways and doorposts were rectangular frames, and window was opposite window in three tiers. Okay, so very difficult or heavy-duty reading, unless you're going to break out the calculator or the pad and pen and uh, start 
working on the numbers. This, this part of the complex, this forest of Lebanon, these tall cedar columns, 150 feet long was this area, 75 feet wide, and these columns are 45 feet uh, tall. That's uh, over four stories wide, like a forest. Probably took a forest to build. Three rows of 15 columns um, supported these uh, trimmed cedar beams to support the roof, which is all cedar, decorative window frames and shutters and lattice, with ventilation, of course, uh, and to see the weather stick. Well, the weather stick is a stick, obviously, and you throw it outside, and if it's dry, it's not raining or snowing, and if it's white, it's snowing, and it's how you read the weather stick. I learned that from the Mohawk Indians. Uh, anyway... Verse 7, then he made a hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. Well, this is an extravagant expense, not stated here, but his, his throne was ivory overlaid with gold. To me, that's ridiculous. That's like overlaying silver with gold. It's, you, you lose the value. I mean, why bother with, I mean, maybe it had a special look. You know, you go leaf ivory, it has a different sheen. First Kings 10, verse 18, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. That's extravagant to me. Maybe somebody can say, no, actually, it was pretty wise. Uh, I don't think it'd be wise to take that position. Well, this is where he held court when he decided between the two mothers and the child in chapter 3, of course, this court had not yet been built, but those are the kind of hearings he would take. When the Queen of Sheba comes to town in chapter 10, she's going to be received in the king's court. Very beautiful, I'm sure. What remains of this temple, of the, not temple, this palace complex? Nothing. There, there aren't even any archaeological finds. Not, not, is there nothing they can say, well, the palace was here. I think God has veiled it. I think if you found where this palace was, you'd get an idea where the temple really was. And uh, if God had not veiled the location of the temple, the Muslims would have claimed it years ago. Uh, so when Antichrist comes, I, I believe the Jewish temple will be in a different place than on the Temple Mount. Verse 8 and, well, the Temple Mount as known today. And verse 8, And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. And so the king's living quarters had a courtyard in it. Uh, that's that the, the court inside the hall. Likely where he entertained and maybe lectured. I believe the Ecclesiastes is a product of some of his lectures. When Bible teaching pastors write books, they draw from their sermons over the years. Well, when Ecclesiastes is penned, he's drawing from his lectures. Uh, it starts off, you know, the words of the preacher, and not preacher in the sense of a pulpit preaching the gospel, but in the sense of a lecturer, one who is speaking wisdom, and people came from all over to hear him. The king's wife, 
again, likely included not just the Pharaoh's daughter. This is the second of five references to his marriage to the Egyptian princess, as though the writer just kind of wants his audience to understand this was not good. Uh, The alliance, as mentioned before, between Solomon and the Egyptian uh, princess was his hope to bring uh, peace and unity between Egypt and, and Israel. And it worked in his lifetime, but after he died, right after he died almost, uh, that all fell apart. So it, it really did not accomplish anything. The wisdom of man, verse 9, all these were of costly stones cut to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside of the great court. <coughs> we will <coughs> skip some verses, but not yet. Again, with these, this kind of writing, costly stones, you, you probably we would say extravagant. You were winning us with the cedar, but now you're going a little bit overboard. But it's still difficult to envision. Verse 10, the foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits and some 8. So 15 foot and 12 foot uh, Blocks for foundation, a solid foundation. That makes sense. But again, the writer, he points out costly stones because they had to quarry them, bring them in. Nothing but the best. Verse 11, and above were costly stones hewn to size, the cedar wood. The great court, verse 12, was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court and the house of Yahweh and the vestibule of the temple. You say, well, why do we have to go read all of this? Well, if I had to read it all day, I thought, Lord, I'm going to punish them too. You got me. I'm getting them. A fortune spent on this building. Uh, the whole complex basically in, in three parts, even though they're different parts to each side. The king's home, the palace, that is, the courtyard in the middle, and then the uh, house of the women, verse 13. Now, King Solomon sent and brought Huram from Tyre. Some translations use Hiram, and that's uh, just an alternate spelling, which is common not only in the Bible, but in those days. To this day, they find uh, misspelled words in, in other archaeological finds from Egypt and Babylon and just other places, the kings spelling their names different ways, and, and the archaeologists do a pretty good job putting it together. So we shouldn't be uh, surprised by that. This uh, master craftsman is not to be confused with King Hiram of Tyre. And so we read verse 14 of this Huram. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Nephtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. Well, I think, you know, if you're going to be spending so much energy on something, you should have competent craftsmen and not just somebody who, you know, hey, I I think I could do that. Uh, This man was an exceptional, evidently. And again, his mother was from the, uh, she was a Jewish she was Jewish, and the father evidently was not. But it's really not clear, because he could have been Jewish and from Tyre. Anyway, uh, verse 15. And he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line 
of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Verse 16, then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits. The height of the other capital was five cubits. So there's big news back then. And the historian is saying these things were, they were enormous. Uh, the two freestanding bronze pillars just outside the temple, not attached to the building, uh, 27 feet high, just the bronze pillar. And then you put the four-foot uh, capital on it, and it um, is high, actually 31 feet together, uh, using the 18-inch um, cubit. So, and they were four-inch thick. These bronze pillars were four-inch thick. And in those days, that's pretty impressive. They were hollow. Jeremiah tells us this in chapter 52 of his prophecies. Uh, the capital on top, you have the pillar, and then you have this ornate capital put on top of that. That's, that was four feet uh, by itself. And so the combined height, the 27 foot, and then the four foot on top, you have a 31 foot column or pillar outside of the house of God. And uh, it will <clears throat> be cut to pieces by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, anyway, verse 17. He made a lattice network of wreaths and chain work for the capitals, which were on the top of the pillar, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So I, I, I was going to not read all of this part, but the, just to highlight that the, the, the skill involved, you know, we tend to think of the ancients as being archaic, and evidently they weren't. To, and when we get to the Bronze Sea, I mean, this thing is just a, like a water tower, just not as tall. Uh, they had to know what they were doing structurally. Uh, if that thing had collapsed, that would have been a washout. Well, you know, 17,000 gallons of water. Anyway, more like 12, not too much. Uh, verse 18, so he made the pillars and the two rows of pomegranate above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top. And thus he did for the other capitals. Well, you know, 31 feet at, down at the base, you can't appreciate all that artwork. That's a practice carried out in these modern days. Look at the Chrysler building in New York. It's got all sorts of gargoyles and hubcaps up there and <laughs> other stuff. And who can see it? I mean, you've got to wait for a documentary to come out to know it's there. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, verse uh, 19, the capitals were on top of the pillars. And in the hall were in the shape of lilies. Now, this is going to factor in a little bit. The capitals on the pillar, pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex surface. Are you following me with this? Is this not invigorating? Which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each side of the capitals all around. Now, pomegranates were an emblem of wealth, of prosperity, of Abundance, probably more likely, abundance. And that might be why he's got 200 of them. Yeah, I mean, he's, he certainly talked with the designers, and David did, and they were laying, very careful about these things. We're now at the temple, incidentally, outside the temple. We've moved away from the palace. Verse 21, then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name Jachin, and he set up a pillar on the left and called its name Boaz. 
So Jacob, he establishes and Boaz, um, in him is strength or he strengthens. And it speaks of the stability and the strength that God would lend to his people so long as they did not become idolaters. Um, that's fine, but what value does this such imagery have for me in the New Testament? Well, I think Paul may have had this in mind when he wrote to Timothy, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which presupposes that people who come to Christ don't know how to automatically know how to conduct themselves in the house of God, and they must be taught. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. We're surprised by that because we think we get saved. I mean, we know everything. (laughs) Uh, Jesus is my Savior, so who can tell me anything about Christianity? Uh, Of course, that's, uh, that's an exaggeration of what some of us do from time to time. Perhaps in our past, not in the future. Uh, He says, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so there Paul is saying the church uh, is, uh, reread it, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. And he also says it's the house of God. Paul says the churches are the house of God, local churches. And they are supposed to support truth, uphold the truth. And I think that he had the Jewish temple in mind. Um, Some forget that it is the house of God, not the house of Christians. And this is why Paul was giving this advice. The pillars remained in front of the temple for about 375 years. That's how long it will take before Nebuchadnezzar shows up, who, of course, not even born at this time. Uh, His army will dismantle these pillars and carry them back to Babylon. Jeremiah 52, 17 gives us a little bit more on that. Now, they stood, as you face east, if you're looking out the front door of the temple, that's your left and your right. We know that from verse 39 gives us a little indication. So the, the, the pillar Jacob was to the south, which would be to the right as you look out the temple, and Boaz would be to the left. Uh, verse 22. Just think, that's a little piece of information that you'll probably never use in your life, but it takes hours to find out. So verse 22 The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. Well, in the Song of Solomon, the beloved Shulamite uses lilies to describe uh, her love for the the shepherd, and he, her. They, they, They use it. It's no less than eight times do they refer to each other in some form, in some connection to lilies. Uh, and lilies are associated more with Solomon than anyone else in the Bible. Even the Lord, the one time he named Solomon, he associates it with lilies. Luke twelve twenty seven. consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was into botany and horticulture at the same time. Ecclesiastes 2 I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. And so, yeah, he, um, this is something that excited him, and 
If he was into UFOs, you'd have little flying saucers all around the place. But uh, fortunately, he, well, he was not. At least we don't know of any of that. Anyway, verse 23. And he made the sea of cast bronze. Now, they're going to give the measurements. I'm tired of saying cubits. Seven and a half feet deep. This is You could swim in this thing. There's this giant bowl sitting out in front of the temple as you, you came up to it. Actually, it would be, as you're looking at the temple, it would be to the left, south, east. And uh, uh, it's 15 feet across. So you seven and a half feet deep. You could swim 15 feet across. The circumference was 45 feet. It, a, a reservoir of water for the priest. And it was practical. It had a function. It was not just, you know, a, a centerpiece to the temple. And the priest, in doing their duty, they needed water or they could be struck dead. I don't mean from thirst. I mean from the hand of God. Exodus 30, verse 18. You shall also make a laver of bronze. That's Moses' temple. It was only one laver. Many buckets to keep it going, I'm sure. Uh, he continues, with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn offerings, to burn an offering made by fire to Yahweh. They shall wash with water lest they die. So this was a big deal. If you're the high priest and they're doing the construction or the plan for the building, you're going to say, where's the water? How are we going to supply it? And this second temple, which is twice as large as Moses and more elaborate, really is going to help the priests out. Water, drinking water, is a picture of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now, John chapter 7, you know, if anyone thirsts, let them come to me. This he spoke of the Spirit, which not had yet been given. Uh, Ephesians 5.18. But water for washing speaks of God's Word. Uh, the washing and the regeneration of the Word. As Ephesians 5, John 15.3, and Psalm 119, verse 9. Water is a, a large emblem for us. And aren't we glad that we are encouraged in life to take baths and showers regularly. You can, you can take a bath and a shower together, and you can play like you're in a submarine that's been hit by a death charge, and the water's coming up, and you're trying to stop. Yeah. Okay, no, some of you are too old for that now. You're missing out. Anyway, I'm, is anybody going to try that when they get home? <laughs> <coughs> Speaking of water, pardon me. Okay. <laughs> Verse 24. Below its brim were ornamental buds, <laughs> encircling it all around. Ten to the cubit. All the way around the sea, the ornamental buds were cast in two rows. When it was cast, verse 25, it stood on twelve oxen. Three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, the south, and the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed inward. Well, it would have been rude to do it the other way. <laughs> it really would have been. 
But, of course, these are bronze oxen. They're not live and likely representing the 12 tribes because there are 12 of them. And the oxen, so necessary in that agrarian culture, it spoke of strength and labor. And together, in this picture, you have this, the, the effort necessary to uphold cleansing, which the water represented at the temple. The symbolism, they, the Jews would not have missed the symbolism in the design or in, or in the, the use of the temple. And, and we don't either. I mean, when we see three crosses, we know immediately what that means. One of the people on one of those crosses went to hell. The other two did not. And there's a whole story behind these things. And it was just that way with them also. Um, so we, we, we're not wasting our time when we look at some of these symbols that are outstanding. They're, they're easy to see. Some of them are not as easy for us. But this, this temple, it's no longer mobile. It's stationary. It's in a fixed position. So with Moses, God in his mercy designed the temple so it could be portable and they could move it without too much effort. I guess the Ark of the Covenant, uh, if he, he had made it solid gold, they couldn't walk with that through the desert. But he overlays wood and the planks for the temple and all the things like that. It was all manageable. Well, now that it's stationary, they're not restricted by that. And God, who's designed this and handed it to David, the, this is going to make perfect sense to have a constant reservoir of water on the Temple Mount. Ahaz, that dirty, rotten scoundrel king that comes later, he's going to eliminate the bronze um, oxen and cut them up and set this giant basin on a stone. You get that in 2 Kings 16. Verse 26, <clears throat> it, it was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. Um, it would take a lot to fill this basin. How many buckets? It's three inches thick. It usually holds 12,000 gallons of water. It has a capacity for 17,000 gallons of water, like 23 tons of water. Just, so a water tower um, without the lid. And we'll come, come back to this in, in a little when we get to the little carts that hold 250 gallons of water each, or at least the capacity for verse 27. He also made, well, there we are. He also made 10 carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each. Verse 28. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels, and the panels were between frames. On the panels were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And the frames were, uh, and on the frames, a pedestal on top. Below the lions, the oxen, the wreaths, and the plated wood. The lions speak, of course, courage and strength, military might in this case, because it's the kingdom. Oxygen, uh, oxygen, oxen, uh, without the cotton. Oxen, cotton, <laughs> Okay. Sorry, uh, the oxen speak of the economy and the cherubim, the spiritual facet, God's kingdom. So that's the, the, the symbolism on, on these carts. But, so you have these carts, and on top of the carts going to go another basin, a smaller one than, of course, the giant sea. And these will be manageable by the priest. So they'll go over to the bronze 
uh, sea of bronze, that water reservoir, and be able to draw from it. It's not stated, but, I mean, they certainly had some practical way of functioning with these things, of, of re- refilling it. And, and so now Moses' temple had one laver. This one has one giant reservoir and ten portable lavers so that the priests can conduct their, their duties. And we'll come to that. Now, verse 30 through 35, does anyone want to stand up and read out loud in the Russian language? Uh, we can do that. We go to verse 37, because all the details of these cars, they have wheels and axles, and they have, looks like, little um, uh, braking system to keep them stationary from rolling away. So they thought out well. Verse 37, Thus he made ten carts. All of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. So uniformed and unitarian uh, these carts were. Beautifully decorated metal wagons, mostly bronze, Verse 38, and I pause there, it has certainly an alloy uh, strong enough to be able to hold the water, and because the capacities are given doesn't mean that's how much they put in. Uh, you need some space for, to control swishing around. I'm sure they, you know, don't fill it up. I told you that, Ira. You know, just get it halfway. It's going to swish out. Uh, and water is pretty heavy, like, you know, so... Verse 38, then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths. Each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver. So these are the basins that sat atop of the carts. The carts were uh, six foot uh, square and four foot, four and a half feet high. So they're, you know, like a hors d'oeuvre cart at some restaurants. Uh, handles on the corner, 230 gallons thereabout. That's about one ton if it's full. Uh, but uh, they are, again, likely not having them full. Um, they were kept in the court of the priests next to the sanctuary. Five on the north side, five on the south side. Mobile, as I mentioned, for refilling and for emptying. I mean, after you dip your hands in it and start using it, you've, you've got to get rid of it. And so these were uh, very functional water for washing and preparing the sacrifices and the general cleanliness of the temple. We get this on the same parallel in the parallel description in Chronicles chapter four, Second Chronicles. He also made ten lavers and put five on the right side and five on the left to wash in them such things as they offered for burnt offerings. They would wash in them, but the sea for the priests was to wash in. So the priests. Use these lavers, these portable lavers, to wash the parts for offerings, uh, and the the bronze, the sea where they would wash themselves, and no doubt refill the carts and empty them out. Uh, is is this? Are you on the edge of your seats yet? Uh, I, it's, I like this very much because it's a welcome upgrade for the priests. This was, you know, we need to get water in the temple. And this satisfies it. Um, the rebuilt temples of Zerubbabel, because after this one is destroyed, the Jews go off to Babylon, they come back, they rebuild their temple. It will have one laver. And then Herod will develop that temple, and it will still have only one uh, laver. 
the sea of ten, uh, the sea and the ten carts, however, are not mentioned in Ezekiel's millennial tabernacle or temple. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that was a swallowing the wrong way. Like you needed to know that. Well, in case you're about to die, one one nine one one. Uh, anyway, indicating that, that, okay, so Ezekiel's temple, he lays out, this is the temple of the millennial reign. And I strongly believe everything connected with that temple would be symbolic. There will be no blood sacrifices. Some people get all upset about that. That's just an added bonus for me. But anyway, uh, there's no laver mentioned, which means there's no cleaning of animal parts. Because there's no butchering going on. Because Christ is the perfect sacrifice. And they're commemorative. They, they have these emblems because there will be people born in the millennial reign who have no knowledge of these things except through us and the Jewish people and the emblems that belong to the temple. So if you are 200 years into the millennial reign and you're born, how are you going to learn about Christ and the sacrifice for sinners? Because you're still going to be born a sinner. Those who are born then, they still will need a savior and they still need religion, true religion. And, and this is, uh, would explain uh, the benefit of having the temple in Jerusalem and pilgrims from all over the world going there. Death will be almost non-existent, so the population is going to be just this population explosion. The Bible says the desert will bloom again. Siberia, Antarctica, you know, they're just all, there'll be people everywhere. And we will be kings and priests. We will be government and the, the spiritual uh, leaders in the millennial reign. So I think it's very significant that this, all of this, this emphasis on how much water is at the temple in Solomon's uh, kingdom. And yet it is absent in the millennial kingdom. And the only exploration to me that makes any sense is that there'll be no need to wash the, uh, the, the, the body parts that have been butchered because there will be no butchering. Well, um, now, if you're Jewish, you won't like that if you're practicing Judaism. Uh, but a Christian has to always come, hey, the finished work of Christ, there's no need for the sacrifice of animals. That's obsolete and no value. Verse 39, and he put five carts on the right side of the house, five on the left. He set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. So that's how we know where these pillars of Jachin and Boaz went, because he tells us how, when he talks about right-left, and in this case, the right side of the house is the southeast. And that means you have to be, from looking out the temple, that would be to your right. Excuse me, and that's how you would know it. Okay, so coming back to verse 40. Uram made lavas and shovels and bowls, so Huron... Huram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of Yahweh. So the contract is completed. All these tools, the ashes and the just preparation and cleanup, uh, he was contracted to do. Well, verse 41, we can skip that. It's, uh, you can go right to 42. You may get out of here early. If we want me to slow down, I could read verse 41. <laughs> 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates 
for each network. And so, again, bringing attention to this, these pomegranates that spoke of abundance. Verse 43, the ten carts, the ten lavers on the carts, one sea, and twelve oxen under the sea. This made up their water system. Verse 45, the pots, the shovels, the bowls, all these articles which Haram made for King Solomon for the house of Yahweh were of burnished bronze. Of course, he had an army of helpers. The bowls would be there to collect the blood. Um, then there, once a year, of course, there was the sacrificial splashing of the blood at the golden altar. But, uh, the, you know, this, the place was not a, a it was a, a slaughterhouse and a butcher shop, but it was kept clean relative to what was going on. Verse 46, in the plain of Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zaratan. You say, why does he put that in there? Well, these places were 40 miles away. So it's kind of interesting in those days before vehicles, you know, cars and trucks, they're hauling everything on donkeys and carts or rollers, depending on what it is. And uh, it is impressive. Verse 47, this is probably the heaviest chapter in Kings. I've been ready for this. <laughs> when we were finishing up Judges, <laughs> we're going to get to Kings. And those first ten chapters, I mean, it, they're just tough. And this is why. Uh, anyway, verse 47, so Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. And the weight of the bronze was not determined. Well, David is the one that saved up the bulk of this bronze. First Chronicles 22. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails and the doors of the gates and for the joints. And bronze in abundance beyond measure. So they had a, a surplus of material. Verse 48. Thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of Yahweh. The altar of gold the table of gold on which was the showbread. Um, no dimensions are given for the altar and the lampstand. Never in the Bible are the, is the lampstand or the dimensions given. Speaking of unlimited light, uh, but the altar is probably the same size as Moses, three foot high, 18 wide, because he just burnt incense on that altar. Uh, and there was no blood sacrifice except once a year, of course, the priest would come and sprinkle it. Uh, but each morning the priest would burn incense on that and each evening and care for the lamps at the same time. So what's the point of all of this for us? Ministry is hard work. It is hard work. And if you think, you, I'm going to serve Jesus, it's going to be glorious. Well, it's going to be glorious. Gloriously difficult. Uh, it is just no way around it. And we're told this. Uh, in the scripture, through the imagery that's, that's given to us, I mean, to bring the animals up, to butcher them, to haul away the blood, to clean up uh, the, the weight of, what was, what's water, uh, like uh, eight and a half pounds a gallon. So it's, it's just so much work goes into this. Uh, so if you serve Jesus, don't go whining <laughs> about how hard it is. Um, how about, I, do I get to whine? No, I, I don't. I 
I'm not going to allow it. Well, sometimes I feel like really whining, but I know better. And uh, it just it's worth it. It is to me, and I think it is to all those who want to serve the Lord. So when you say, I want to serve Jesus, you're really saying, I want to be a slave for Jesus. And that is something that is honorable. Anyway, uh, in Scripture, the burning of incense is a picture of prayer. Our prayers rising up to God. You can reference Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, Revelation 5, 8, and Revelation 8, 3. I will like to read uh, Exodus 30, 10. And Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations. It is most holy to Yahweh. That's the incense altar that represents prayer. The point, God is saying, your prayers, even the mostly ungranted ones, or all the ungranted ones, are still meaningful to me. That's what God is saying. I mean, we we pray for good things as Christians, and we don't always get them. We pray for people that are sick and don't get better. We pray for people's souls and to to get saved. We, We have a lot of prayers And we often don't see them answered, granted. Uh, But God says, don't be discouraged. That doesn't mean they're they're meaningless to me. Uh, It's just he is God and we are not. And there are things we don't know and he does. Verse 49, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left in front. of The inner sanctuary with the flowers and lampstands and the wick trimmers of gold. Yeah, little things. You know, they needed scissors to trim the wicks so that the lamps would burn bright. Who does that? Somebody had to do that. Who refills the soap in the bathroom? Somebody's got to do that. What about the tissue boxes? When someone has to do that in God's house, that you may know how you conduct yourselves in the house of God, the pillar and ground of truth, believing that it's worth it. Or else um, your labor is in vain. You don't really help out the church. Uh, you know, it's a bad thing. So I'm going to go down and help out the church. I'm going to go serve. The church does not want token help. It wants servants who work for Jesus Christ. Should it be anything less? I don't think so. Um, we're not, we know, none of us want to be hirelings, as difficult as it, as it may be. Uh, well, we are at verse 50, which speaks of the well, the lampstand, verse 49, the lampstand of pure gold, five on the right, five on the left. So there were ten lamps now, not one, making the, the brilliance of the holy place ten times brighter in, in this temple than it was in Moses' temple. And this is advancement. I'll come back to that. Verse 50, the basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the laddles, and the censers of pure gold. And the hinges of gold, both on the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. Um, it's typical that David would be given this vision to make brighter the house of God because he did it with his psalms. Did he not? Did he not just, I was glad when they said, let's go to church. That's why I, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And then when he speaks of being betrayed, you know, we used to, you know, go to the, in the throng together to the temple. And it was just, you know, this lamentation in his tone, his sob, that he was betrayed by someone that used to go to church with him. 
And we see these things carried out. But it is uh, very appropriate of God to, of all the men and women that he had to choose from, to say, David, I want you to give the prince to my temple, and I want it to be ten times brighter. And I want it to make service, difficult service, easier with all that water. I mean, they're just having a place for it. Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 3. Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But Yahweh will arise over you, and his glory will be upon, upon you. The Gentiles shall come to you, to your light, the kings, to the brightness of your rising. Well, that's millennial. It is unfortunate that the Jewish people never really learned how to invite the outsider in. They just never got it. Not until Paul comes along. In all their history, they never let their light shine to the Gentiles Enough to bring them in. It often repelled them. And today in the church, we have to be careful because we're not supposed to lasso people to get them to come to church. We'll let the light shine. And when they come, they have to learn how to behave in the house of God. Otherwise, you are attracting, you're building a foundation on rubble that will collapse uh, there's this, these laws, these principles, we apply, Christians often apply them everywhere in life except the house of God. And then scratch their head and wonder why, um, you know, the Bible's not preached in churches anymore. There, there's a reason for that. It's not magic. Most, I think most men, when they're called to ministry, they want to preach the gospel and the truth and the word. And in many churches, they're not allowed to. Um, some churches are structured where they, they don't have that burden, but most, most churches, the pastors just can't speak what they want because they have to answer to a board and not a lord. And that is a big problem. John's gospel, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so this temple, ten times brighter. As a Christian, I'm supposed to be ten times brighter. It's one of the lessons coming out of this. And uh, again, is my walk? You know, so you know, in our desperation, we shouldn't have a desperation like this, but some have this desperation to reach the lost or to bring people into the house of God. And that is a killer because that means you'll, you will surrender high principles to get them to come in and break down more high principles instead of just saying, hey, it's a take it or leave a deal. This is it. Don't you want that from a car dealer? Wouldn't it be nice to say, how much is it? And I want to know that I'm paying the same thing that guy's paying. Everybody else love the haggling at the car dealers? Man, you just always feel like, man, I bet you I left $8,000 on the table. And they're all snickering. I know that's probably not true, but you feel that way. And so with the house of God, you want people to come in and say, listen, this is how we do it. There's nothing, there's no tricks this is it. What you see is what it is. Boy, that would be refreshing to me. It was that way at Costa Mesa. I mean, you'd go there and back in the, before it became defiled, you would go there and man, it was like this. This is New Testament Christianity. As close as you can get to the book of Acts. 
And now they just b- preach anything, unfortunately. Joseph Parker, uh, I believe it was Joseph Parker, was a great pastor in England back in the 19th, early, mid-19th century. And he said from the pulpit, if, when I die, if a man should come into this church and preach any heresy, let Ichabod be written across the door of the church. And Joseph Parker died. I'm sure hoping it's Joseph Parker. I know he's dead but and in heaven, but I, I'm pretty sure it was him. Uh, anyway, uh, the, the man that replaced him started out strong and then began to, be, to, to become a heretic in his preaching. And somebody who heard Joseph Parker say that painted on the door, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Man, that's Christianity. Or oh, vandalism, too. But... <laughs> Uh, and, you know, you just say to yourself, well, it may not have worked for that church. Did anybody look at that and say, we have to get our act together? That is, you know, we have departed. Well, if they did not, others can hear that story and say, well, you know, as best as I can, I'm not going to let that happen to me. Verse 51. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of Yahweh was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of Yahweh. Surplus of wealth. Uh, Even after all that uh, labor and painting or overlaying everything with gold, still there was a surplus. And so Solomon deposits that into the trust of the church or the temple uh, so they, they could buy supplies and sustain themselves. And yet all this beauty was destroyed. All of this wealth has, has been lost, confiscated by an a idolatrous army, an army of idolaters, as God said would happen. Uh, the extravagance of the king... It comes out in this chapter, uh, but also the excellence in ministry. And and excellence in ministry can only come through hard work uh, and then a little bit more hard work. Let's let's pray. Our Father, um, a tough chapter for we humans in this century to read all of these cubits and things like that. And yet, yet, typical of your word, there are these... Gems just beneath the surface. Uh, May they be meaningful to us and useful to you. May you use us, Lord, to serve you. And may we be mature and understand that serving is hard work emotionally and physically and even mentally. And yet, you will sustain us all the way. May you get us all home safely this evening. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.